Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. What we're dealing with, this is one of the deepest subjects that we could possibly talk about. We're dealing with here what is called in Scripture as the atonement. There's another word that's given to it, very, very theological word, means the same thing, propitiation. And what this doctrine is, what this truth is, is really the very centerpiece of Christianity. Jesus is the center, but this atonement, this work of atonement that Jesus did on the cross is what Christianity rises or falls on. It all hinges on this one great central truth. The truth of the atonement or the propitiation of sin that took place on the cross. So I want to talk to you about that for the next 15 or 20 minutes. It'll be a short, I believe, a short um, sermon this morning, but I want to make sure that it is really clear because it is so important, it's so central, that we need to understand it correctly. But it's a deep subject, so uh, as I've already prayed that God would help us to understand, that pray that you would... Uh, You'd listen really hard, right? You'd listen really clearly. First of all, God does not negotiate. God does not negotiate. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul wrote these words, In Him, referring to Jesus Christ, In Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, God the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What I want you to focus on in that that verse is the last part of that verse where it says this, that He or Him, God the Father, works all things according to the counsel of His will. Here's the clip notes on that, okay? Everything that God decides to do, He does. Perfectly, completely, comprehensively, always, at all times, God and His will is carried out in absolute perfection, in perfect timing, and culminates exactly the way that He wants it to, wants it to culminate. Because the truth is, as Paul wrote it, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's His will that's critical, and He knows what that is. And all things that He superintends in the universe, which is all things, He superintends all things, controls all things, that they all work together for the counsel of His will. So let me say the negative side of that. 
God does not work against the opposing forces of evil in this world as a give and take. You know, you take some, I get some. No, he doesn't do that. He's God. He's omnipotent. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. He does not negotiate. God has a plan, and it's an eternal plan. And He accomplishes that plan comprehensively and perfectly. All of the universe is at His beck and call and is obedient to His superintendence of all events. He's sovereign. So, let's kind of extrapolate now into this idea of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and ask the question, then what did God the Father have to do with the crucifixion of His Son? How did that relate, that event, that central event in human history, that event that all of humanity, whether they know it or not, hangs upon, depending upon what you believe about He who hung on that cross. Let's talk about what the Father and His will had to do with the Son hanging on the cross. If it's true that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, then the all things would have to include what? It would have to include the crucifixion of the Son on the cross. You see, I think that often there is an idea that goes something like this. I'm even talking about in the church. Uh, remember when I was young, kind of grappling with this when I was young, that there are these two forces. There's the force of good God, and then there's the force of evil, Satan, and they're kind of like parallel beings in two different opposing forces. Like, here's the being God of all good, and here's the being Satan of all evil, and they're kind of like equal, God's goodness equal to Satan's evil. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is not a created being. He is the creator. He is the eternally existent being who knows all, is everywhere present, can do all things. He doesn't have a match in the evil realm. There's no such thing as an evil equal to God's goodness. It says in Romans 3.25, so we're going to look now at what did God the Father have to do in relationship with the crucifixion of His Son. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It reads like this, that God, God the Father, presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. 
through faith in His blood. God the Father presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. First of all, let me just kind of define that word atonement. You might have a different translation, uh, like the ESV version uses the word propitiation that I was mentioning earlier. Here's what atonement has to do with. It has to do with gaining the favor of God. Gaining the favor of God. So here is what is implied. That the favor of God wasn't there and needed to be gained. So that in order to gain the favor of God, between God and man, God offered the Son as a sacrifice of atonement. As a way in which His favor could be on mankind. God the Father offered the Son so that His favor could be on mankind, so that He could atone for humanity. How did Jesus then make the difference? What is it about the death of Christ that makes it possible for us to move into a relationship of favor with God, not being in a relationship of favor, and to move into a relationship of favor. What is it that Jesus did that makes that possible? Well, it was His death on the cross. You see, here's the problem. We have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. Everybody that I'm looking at has a sin problem. And what happens, what Scripture affirms over and over again, is that God is a holy God. God is a God without sin, but not only without sin, He's a God that cannot fellowship with sin. But even more than that, Not only is He without sin, not only can He not have fellowship with sin because He's holy, but His holiness demands that sin be dealt with. Why? Because He's a sovereign God. This is His world. He has set up this world under a moral code and when we sin, we, were, we are in open rebellion against God and God must deal with that sin if He's truly a holy God. Because sin destroys. Sin brings pain and loss. And this is God's universe and He does not sit back and just allow sin to go unchecked undealt with, i.e. unpunished. So we have a sin problem. We have a sin problem because God is a holy God. And here's what sin then brings. And listen, I have to make you understand the bad news so you can understand the incredible news. The bad news is like a black curtain backdrop upon which the truth, the good news, stands out in bold relief when you understand the solution that is given in Jesus. You see, 
what sin brings from a holy God is wrath. God's wrath. Sin must be responded by a holy God in wrath so that if all of us are sinners and we are, then what that means is that we are under the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not some kind of loose cannon, lost his temper, you know, kind of exploding in anger. That's not the wrath of God. If you studied out biblically, that is not the picture of the wrath of God at all. The wrath of God is a calculated determination that in his world, he's not going to let sin go unpunished. He's going to deal with it. He's going to pour his wrath out upon it. And so here's how it works. The holiness of God demands that his wrath be poured out against sin and his righteousness or his justice pours it out. Or I could say it like this, that the justice of God or his righteousness pours out the wrath of God because His holiness demands it. So here's the problem. Humanity is in a bad, bad place. You see, for us to be saved, we've got to find a way to escape the wrath of God. How? Do you escape the wrath of an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God whose holiness demands that His righteousness pour out His wrath against sin? That's where the cross of Jesus Christ comes in. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He, God the Father made Him, Jesus His Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just let that truth kind of sit into your brain for a minute. What that says is that God the Father made His perfect, holy Son, Jesus Christ, who is without sin, He made Jesus sin. It says another place in Scripture that what God did literally is that He took our sin and He put it on Jesus Christ as if Jesus Christ is actually the one that committed your sin. He owned it. He is the perpetrator. He became the guilty party by the act of God the Father who made Him sin. Now go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. What it says there 
is that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. God the Father presented Jesus the Son as his sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity. So ladies and gentlemen, here is what we've got. We've got this almost terrifying thought, this terrifying idea that the holy, perfect God of the universe took His holy, perfect Son who had been with Him throughout all of eternity in unbroken, perfect relationship and He took that holy, perfect Son who was God as well God, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and He sent Him to earth to put on the flesh of humanity so that He could go to the cross so that the Father could present the Son to be the sacrifice as the one who took on the sin like He actually committed the sin of humanity so that what could happen on the cross? It's this. So that now the holiness of God demands that the sin be punished and the righteousness or justice of God takes the wrath of God and pours it out on His own Son. Every drop of the wrath of God poured out by God on His Son to pay for the sins that His holiness demanded be paid for. That's why that song that we were singing a little bit earlier says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God, meaning He is the sacrifice that the Father provided to take care of the sins of humanity. God presented him as such. Now I'm going to show you in a minute how that is the consistent truth throughout Scripture. But before I do that, I'm just going to kind of extemporaneously here try to paint a picture for you from the Old Testament. I didn't do this in the first service, so you guys get the bonus here this morning. You see, in the Old Testament, what God did with the Jewish people, the Old Testament is God's account of human history, and it begins in creation, and then it comes to the 12th chapter in Genesis, and God selects a man. His name is Abram, and God says to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, and that became the Jewish people. And as the story unfolds throughout the Old Testament, here's what happens. God establishes with the Jewish people a system of sacrifices, a temple in which He dwells, and He gives them a process of sacrifices that they need to participate in on a regular basis in order to come to Him. Why? Because he's holy. And so he establishes this extensive set 
of rules and regulations in which the people of the Old Testament, the Jews of the Old Testament, would come to the temple and they would sacrifice to God and have their sins, quote, theoretically atoned for for another period of time until they had to offer another sacrifice. Kind of appeasing God, so to speak. But that's not what was really happening. You see, in the light of the New Testament, we understand fully what was happening. God was painting a picture all through the Old Testament of a great sacrifice that was to come. And so here's what he did with the tabernacle, with, the, with this temple, this tabernacle that they had and a system of sacrifices. There was one day called the Day of Atonement. That's the subject we're talking about. And here's what had to happen on that day. In this tabernacle, this big tent, there was an outer courtyard. And then within the outer courtyard, there was a secondary, smaller courtyard called the holy place. And there was some elements in the outer courtyard. There were some elements in the inner courtyard that had some very specific meaning to them. I won't go into that. But then you'd come to the back of the holy place, and there is this curtain, this unterrible curtain that took 400 men to move that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in this holy of holies section, in the back of the tabernacle, there was what was called the Shekinah presence of God. There was a bright light that hovered over what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me explain the Ark of the Covenant because it'll help you understand this picture of the atonement in the Old Testament. It was a chest that had a lid on it. It was covered in gold. It was made of wood and it was covered in gold. And on the lid that was covered in gold, there were two angels. And those figures, those golden angels were facing each other on top of the lid from one side to the next and they had their wings stretched out and their wings touched each other over the top of this lid. And this lid was called the seat of propitiation or the seat of atonement. Inside this chest, under the lid, there was some elements there was the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. And there was a jar of manna. As they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, God would send bread down from heaven, and they had a golden jar of manna to represent the provision of God. And then there was a rod. There was Aaron's rod, the high priest's rod. But let me tell you something about each one of those. What had they done with the Ten Commandments, the laws of God? They had broken them. What had they done with the jar of manna, the manna that God had sent? They grumbled and complained. So they had broken the law of God. They had rejected His provision. And then the, the staff, Aaron's staff, the high priest's staff, they had rebelled against the high priest that God had set up. And so his staff was there as a symbol. So inside the ark was the broken law of God, 
the rejection of his provision and the rejection of his leadership. And right above the lid, between the angels, hovered the bright light, the Shekinah presence of God. So think about this. What did God do? What did God see as he hovered there over the seat of atonement? He saw into that chest and he saw evidences that they had broken his law that they had rejected his provision, and that they had rejected his leadership. And so here's what God said. On one day a year, one day only, the high priest and the high priest only is to go out to the very outer court, out to the door of the tabernacle, and he's to slaughter a lamb there. And he's to catch the blood of the lamb. And that lamb has to be examined, and it has to be spotless. And he has to catch the blood of that lamb and then he has to carry it through the outer court, through the inner court, right up to the curtain, the holy of holies. And then he has to go behind that curtain and he has to take the blood of that sacrificed animal and pour it on the seat of atonement. Why? So that when God looked down, he didn't see the broken law and the rejected provision and the rejected leadership he saw the spilled blood. And when God saw that, he'd say, for one more year, I'll withhold my wrath for one more year. And then the next year, they'd go through the same ceremony. And God'd say, well, one more year, I'll withhold my wrath from being poured out. And ladies and gentlemen, what that was, was a picture that one day the true lamb was going to come. And that was the lamb of God. That was the very son of God himself. And what that lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was going to do is he was going to willingly spill his own blood so that it could be placed over our sin so that God would look at us and he wouldn't see our sin. He would see that Jesus had paid the price for our sin so that he could then extend his favor to us instead of pour his wrath out upon us. You see, when Jesus came and he completed that once and for all time sacrifice, the sacrifices at the temple died out. They were not needed anymore because they had just been a picture to point the way to Jesus and Jesus had now come. And Jesus provided a sacrifice once for all time. He is the high priest who paid the great sacrifice who went right into the presence of God with his own blood and poured it there as a proof that the payment of sin had been made so that God could now extend his favor to whom? To everybody that comes to Jesus and Jesus only. And ladies and gentlemen, what I just explained to you in the last 15 or 20 minutes, that is the great message of the Bible right there. That is really the center message that explains all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. That's the centerpiece truth of the Bible, the redemption that God provided through His Son for mankind. Now back to this idea 
that it was the Father in heaven who actually presented His Son as the sacrifice. Is that really the consistent message of Scripture? Let me just read you a couple of verses. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush Him, Jesus. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son, Jesus Christ. He has put Him to grief. Does that sound like a negotiation? (laughs) No, this is the work of the Father accomplishing the salvation for mankind. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Father in heaven, has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means this, that God, who has known all things for all time throughout all of eternity, never one day decided, hey, let's make a way to save man from their sin. No, He's known it throughout all of eternity. He never had a negotiation that led Him into it. It has been His plan throughout all of eternity to slay His own Son to pay for our sin so that we could have His favor and have eternal life. Philippians 2.8 Listen to what this says about Jesus. And Jesus, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Who did Jesus become obedient to? He didn't become obedient to the devil who killed Him. No, He became obedient to the Father who had determined that His death was the way He would take care of man's sin. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was an act of obedience to His Father. And then here is a very explicit statement in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I mean, can't get any clearer than that that it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of the eternal God that He would send His Son to the cross to be the sacrifice. So that ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, the flogging of torture before the crucifixion, the crown of thorns that was put on Jesus' head, the spikes that were driven through His wrists, Though the hands of soldiers held the mallet that that did that, the hand of the Father in heaven held the hand of the soldier that held the mallet that drove the spikes through the flesh of His Son. It was God working all things out according to the counsel of His will, God the Father. And it was God the Son saying, Father, Your will be done. I came to do Your will and I will go to the cross obediently to accomplish it. You see, what's at stake here 
getting this doctrine right is this. Our sin means we have to be saved from God, His wrath. Who else could save us from God? Who is up to the task of saving us from God but God? And so what God did is He made a way through His Son to save us. And His Son willingly went to the cross, obediently paid the price, And then three days later, the father called him from the tomb back to life, just like Jesus said that he would, proving that the father had accepted the sacrifice for sin. So that now, if you come to Jesus, and only to Jesus, you can be saved. If you come any other way, if you try to earn your way to God, if you try to do anything to merit yourself before God, here's what you're saying. I'm going to buy the death of your son. That's an insult. You can't buy the death of God. You accept it as a free gift. You come in your sin and you come to Jesus and you say, I believe that you're God, that you died willingly for me, sent by the Father, and I am coming to you in my sin, in my brokenness, and I'm saying, by your grace, save even me. I believe in you. And when you do that, when you do that, here's the truth. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not some, not most, not 99%, but every single one who comes to the Son for salvation and only to the Son with no merit of their own, but believes in Jesus and what He did on the cross, His victory over sin and death, that God, because of their faith, In what Jesus has done, God the Father grants them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now, He's a holy God who can fellowship with you because your sin has been paid for. He doesn't have to turn His back on your sin and His holiness can now enter into a relationship because your sin is atoned for. It's taken away. And now, The way the Father sees you if you come to the Son, He sees you as perfectly righteous as His Son, Jesus Christ. So why wouldn't He have a relationship with you? Ladies and gentlemen, that is what makes Christianity different from every other religion, categorically every other religion in the world, because every other religion in the world says, I do something to get to God. And Christianity says, you can't do anything. You're under His wrath. It had to be done for you, and it was done by God Himself in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't negotiate with Satan. The death of Jesus was planned from eternity past by the Father, accomplished according to the perfect will and timing of the Father, and the Son walked into that in perfect obedience. That's why on the cross, with His final breath, Jesus didn't cry out in a note of defeat. He cried out in a shout of victory and said, It is finished! 
I have accomplished what my Father sent me to accomplish. I paid for sin. I have taken His wrath. Victory. And then He gave up His Spirit. And then three days later, He broke out of the tomb like He said that He would. Ascended back to heaven and says, One day, if you trust in Me, I'm coming back to get you. And in the meantime, I'll walk with you day in and day out. You can have a personal relationship with God if you come through Jesus 